From Dirty Spoon Media and WPVM, it's Second Helpings, extended conversations with some of our favorite guests. I'm Jonathan Ammons. Just as a warning, there will be talk of severe violence and sexual assault in today's episode, so if that's an issue for you, you might want to approach this one with some caution. A while back, I was asked to write a profile on the company Three Mountains Tea for WNC Magazine. I don't think my editor or I knew much about the backstory for that company, just that it was a fair trade tea company based here in Asheville that sold Rwandan teas. But there's much more to the story than just a love of good tea and its place in the Rwandan export system. And much of that story revolves around deep roots of trauma and the long process of healing and recovery. During her college days, Three Mountains Tea founder Sarah Stender Delaney had been studying in France when she was attacked and raped by a stranger following her home late one night after dinner. Haunted by the trauma, Sarah used alcohol to cope as she tried to work her way up through the business world. But something was missing. After seeing a documentary on the Rwandan genocides in the 90s, she felt drawn to the region, a place where people have suffered unfathomable violence and trauma and still somehow are beginning to move on with their lives. If you aren't familiar with the Rwandan genocide, it's pretty harrowing. There's a ton of complicated and detailed history, but to put it simply, following the German and subsequent Belgian colonization of Rwanda, a gap had been wedged between Rwanda's largest ethnic groups, the Tutsi and the Hutu, with both struggling for power in the now independent nation. And an on-again, off-again civil war that lasted decades came to a head in 1994, following the shooting down of the president's plane when Tutsi militia, armed largely with machetes, began 100 days of bloodshed, butchering Hutu friends, family, and neighbors alike. When the blood was finally washed from the streets, nearly one million Rwandans had been killed at the hands of their own countrymen. Many victims of the genocide still live side by side with their neighbors that carried out the butchery. Sarah felt drawn to the nation and found herself there helping to open a restaurant, training, and therapy program for victims of the attacks. In the process, she developed and founded Three Mountains Tea, a fair trade tea company that imports and distributes Rwandan tea throughout North Carolina. I caught up with her a few weeks ago. Here's our conversation. I don't know, you've got a really interesting story, and I think that it's really interesting when people get into a business from a position of compassion. Mm. which is really fascinating because that's just not our typical capitalist reasons for mm. getting into businesses. Mm. And I don't know, I think that's something that kind of stands out about, about Three Mountains to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I wonder if like, you could just give a little bit of background on your story and like how you came to be in Rwanda and, mm. what, and how, you, how you came around to, to running this company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> um, I I like that you brought up that word compassion. And, you know, I remember being, <laughs> I have this vivid memory of being a kid, maybe like junior high. Um, I was in a pretty entrepreneurial family. I grew up in Vermont and I had like cousins and my stepdad, they had their own business. Um, some of them did okay. Some of them like struggled and I saw them go up and down with, you know, trying to launch and grow their businesses. Um, and I remember like always wanting to create something, um, and like starting little businesses, even as, as a kid. Um, but then I also remember this time that it's like, it felt really kind of depressing. It was like I was searching, yeah, I remember driving down this road on my way to school and looking at all the businesses along the side of the road and thinking, I mean, I was young, and I'm thinking, what is the point of that? What's the point of that? What's the point? <laughs> like, who are those miserable people? Like, that just doesn't look fun to me. Um, and I'm not judging that at all. Like, right. I have so much respect for people who find joy in the smallest actions, you know, because I don't think we need to be out there like trying to change the world or save other people um, in order to have a meaningful life at all. Right. But for me, I was like, I had this kind of empty feeling like there was something more and I didn't, I, I knew I wanted to create something, but I just didn't know what it was. And I wanted it to be, it had to be really meaningful and deep for me. Yeah. Um, I saw, you know, like I said, I grew up in, in a family with, um, 
entrepreneurs and sometimes we had money and sometimes we didn't have money mm-hmm. and it was scary. Yeah. <laughs> it was like very, um, it felt, you know, very inconsistent, very unpredictable. And, um, but I still had this high tolerance for risk. You know, I was willing to do whatever it would take to find my purpose and my passion and my calling. Um, but there, you know, I took some detours, like right out of college, I, I worked for a big bank in Boston and I thought maybe money would make me happy because I wasn't happy. Right. And it seemed to be making some of my friends happy. <laughs> so, uh, or I thought maybe, you know, for a little while I'll do this thing, I'll make some money and then I'll go figure myself out. Yeah. I'll go travel the world or something. But I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I trained, I studied, I, you know, did the cold calling and I was miserable. And I don't think it was because of the job. I don't, I think I would have been miserable in anything. Like that was just where I was at in my life. I had so much like personal development work to do. It didn't matter what company I was with. It was just what I brought with me wherever I went. It had just always, wherever we go, there we are. Yeah. It would just be a job. (laughs) It would always just be work. Yeah. 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 So when did you start uh, the tea company? Um, So I started Three Mountains three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. Um, before that, I started a nonprofit called Africa Healing Exchange. And um, that was in response to having lived in Rwanda in 2009. And during that year, I was running a restaurant called Heaven. And I was hired to develop this um, technical skills training program for young adults who had been very, um, very young children during the genocide of 94. So most of them had witnessed their parents die. They were all orphans. And so there was a lot of trauma, um, but they wanted something more. They were asking for job skills. They wanted training. They wanted new opportunities. So I was hired to create this training program within a new restaurant. Hmm. And um, so I I lived there for a year. And in that time, as I I deepened relationships with people, I saw that, uh, I was even told that um, there really was this deep need for trauma healing, for services that would help the emotional suffering that was underneath the surface. And people needed jobs. But in order to create jobs and secure jobs, um, there needed to be a basic level of mental health first. Yeah. And so I think that has to come first with everything. You know, we, I don't, I don't believe in charity. I mean, I think it, I think it's helpful for like, um, natural disasters, you know, moments of crisis for sure. Yeah. I think aid is appropriate. Um, but in the long run, people really want to take care of themselves. They want to earn their own money. So, um, but there has to be this level of resilience. There has to be a level of basic mental health. And so that's where we started with Africa mm-hmm. Healing Exchange, creating a foundation of mental health. And then from there, as people started feeling better emotionally and mentally, they were asking for business skills. So we started a business skills training program. Awesome. And then from there, we launched the business. Yeah. So cool. we're rooted in that social mission. Yeah. We're rooted in this like now triple bottom line. Awesome. You know, so I was on a panel this morning with the Economic Development Committee, with the Chamber of Commerce, um, and I was speaking about, they asked me how, like, being a social enterprise maybe had um, influenced the way that I did business. Yeah. And I talked about how um, I'm not worried about losing our, what you talk about, the compassion part of our business, because that's who we are. Right. Right now, it's like, I need to focus on on profit, because (laughs) in order to really create this sustainable enterprise and help as many people as possible... It has to make money. (laughs) It has to make money. (laughs) We aren't a nonprofit. Yeah. I did that. (laughs) And fundraising is hard, too. Yeah. So that's where we're at now, Um, really keeping an eye on the triple bottom line and really looking at how... To build, I'm really excited about creating this commercially successful brand where we can show, you know, in this mainstream marketplace, we can show that it pays to do good. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, if it's not fiscally viable, then 
it's not going to work anyway. But it's, yeah. if you can show that you can do the right thing and still be profitable, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. a. Is mm-hmm. how did you wind up in Rwanda? So I I had just moved to Asheville. Uh, 13, 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I had moved to Asheville. Been here for a year. I moved down here from Vermont. Um, and I love Asheville. Um, I was working for, I brought my own job with me. Um, I was running a national fair trade campaign. At the time, it was called Fair Trade Towns USA. Oh, cool. Now it's owned by Fair Trade USA which is a third-party certifying body. And um, so I, I was corresponding with producer groups around the world in that capacity. Um, and I started connecting with this organic coffee farmer in Rwanda called, his name is Mr. Emmanuel. And I found that he had pursued organic certification, I think it was 2007, um, very proactive. Like the demand was not that great for single origin Rwandan organic coffee. Right. <laughs> and it's expensive to do that. So I somehow found his email and uh, he responded, this Rwandan hmm. man, and he said, um, he gave me all this information about their farm and their process and why he did what he did because he knew it was the right thing for his people, for the environment. And then he said, You're welcome to come visit. <laughs> Oh, wow. I was like, all right, (laughs) I'll be there. (laughs) He probably says that to everyone. Um, I did eventually meet him, which is pretty amazing. Awesome. Um, But there were a lot of seeds like that planted along the way. Even before that, um, in my early 20s, I watched this documentary about the genocide in Rwanda. And, I mean, I speak about that in my TED Talk. That, yeah. that, that film just changed my life. Yeah. It was at a time in my life that I was, you know, I said already, kind of lost, like really unhappy. Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Um, I wasn't suicidal, but I would say I was like, just what the heck is the point here? You yeah. Know? Despair. Despair. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's what, when I listened to your TED Talk, that was the thing that, that fascinated me the most, I think, was I was like, did this come from, did that draw to that place come from seeing people that have been through tragedy that you understand Mm -hmm. and can relate to? Like, was it just, I can't even think of the word that I'm looking for Mm -hmm. there, but like, because, you know, you you were attacked and you have that PTSD that yeah. you were trying to deal with it. Yeah. And then to see a whole society of people yeah. that share, shared this massive amount of trauma. Yeah, exactly. It was. It was like I was living this just kind of checked out, numbed out life. I was turning to alcohol to check out even more, feeling really disconnected from other people and myself. Mm-hmm. I was living a false identity. You know, the person I presented on the outside wasn't who I was feeling on the inside. Yeah. And when I watched that movie, it's like, I, yeah, you would think that I wouldn't really feel anything in common for maybe a group of women in Rwanda halfway around the world where I'd never been. But it was like, I, I, I felt an instant connection. Yeah. But it was this, it was like a feeling of my heart breaking open. Like I could, I could feel their pain. So I, I was, I felt um, so sad for what they had gone through. And then as I started processing it, I realized it was actually like sadness for what I had experienced that I had never allowed myself to feel. Yeah. So they started me on my healing journey without us even meeting. And wow. it's like, how powerful is like a movie, a film, a book, a radio program that we can share our stories with each other, no matter where in the world we are. Yeah. It's and and that's why I love, you know, having the opportunity to come on pro, like this program because who knows who's listening? Yeah. And I think so many people are feeling alone in whatever their experience is, but no one's really ever. I don't think anyone's ever experienced something that no one else has ever experienced. Yeah. We're not that unique. <laughs> no. <laughs> Like, even, like, I went through, I mean, I I had some things happen. I did some things. I was like, yeah, there's no way anyone else did that. But now, (laughs) 
<laughs> I hear stories all the time. Right. Crazy stories, but they're not that unique. Yeah. And and I'm not saying like I I I would never never claim to understand what it is like to live through a genocide. Oh my gosh, there's no way right. I could I wouldn't even try to relate to that. But there's always something in common we have with each other. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, a great experience or not a great experience, but um, it was this deep, deep calling, like, I've got to go to this place that has experienced the worst imaginable thing, and they've moved through it somehow. Mm-hmm. They're still suffering, just like they're suffering everywhere in the world. Yeah. There's trauma everywhere. Yeah. Um, but how have they recovered after that? You know, when the land was covered in blood, I mean, there were bodies everywhere. Yeah. People being... Like people being caught up with machetes in front of you, you know. And I was talking to a man at the the event this morning who had been to Rwanda and um, actually in the seventies before the genocide. And then he went back a few years ago and he was telling me how different it was from the seventies. And 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 also was just like so amazed that to see how a whole nation could be recovering yeah. after such a tragedy. And it's not the only place in the world. I mean, there have been so many genocides. Right. Um, it's Yeah, it's just interesting to me because I feel like a lot of times, even in the fair trade world, it can almost be like cultural appropriation mm. of these regions by just, you know, someone in the States like doing good work and mm. doing helpful work. But with your story, I feel like there is just this shared connection there of shared trauma mm. and your ability to relate to mm-hmm. to that stuff is really... Mm -hmm. unique a unique Mm -hmm. perspective i think i had this um this might be a little woo-woo like (laughs) i hope i don't offend anyone (laughs) but i had this dream um before i so after i lived in rwanda i came back to the states for a little while and um and then my um one of my first trips back so so the place that i work most closely with now it's in the western province and it's actually near where Mr. Emanuel has his coffee farm. But I'm working with a group of women now that Mr. Emanuel introduced me to. Huh. Um, so it's this beautiful, amazing mountaintop. It used to be volcanic. You climb like 45 minutes up, you know, four by four up this really rough road. And you're overlooking Lake Kivu. You can see the Congo across the lake. Um, and the women who we work with, so... They are coffee farmers, but coffee is such an unstable industry. There's only one harvest per year. Whoa. So they make some money, but it's like every, you know, once a, once a year. Yeah. And if the weather's bad, if their crops don't work out. They're just out, screwed. Yeah. yeah. So in between, they grow vegetables, so they have something to eat. Um, so now we're creating a... Um, we have a farm. We're growing botanicals, and we have an herbal tea company there. Oh, cool. So this is new. They're selling the herbs fresh, dried, in tea blends. Um, but backing, backing up a little bit, the first time I went up there, I'm, we're climbing this mountain in a car, and um, it stops. And I look out, and there's this field of cabbages. Like, the biggest cabbages I've ever seen. Like, bigger than our head. <laughs> like, huge. And I had seen it before. And I had had a dream before I even was there about this oh, field. that's creepy. It's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> the cabbages. And the women like were in the field. Like deja vu all over again. It was. <laughs> and, I, and, and I met the women, and I swear I had met them before. Huh. And the way that they greeted me, and it's like, I'm not special. They greet everyone like this. But the way that they greeted me was like, we were family. I mean, the way they hugged me was like long lost relative. And that's how I felt. Like I had been yeah. there before. I was meant to be there. And that's that's how it is every time I'm back. Wow. How long And did it you was s- the first time I, I felt this deep, deep sense of home. And that's what I had been searching for yeah. is a sense of home. I mean, I'd been traveling, you know, trying to escape things. And really, I guess I was just trying to escape myself. And f- that geographical cure never works for very long. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like the first time I, I really felt at home. And I realized it's because of that deep connection 
with another with a community, this feeling that I'm part of a community that really cares, that's unconditional. They've been through so much and yeah. they still like know how to love. Right. And it helped me feel at home within myself. And I'm able to carry that with me now wherever I go. Yeah. Interesting. So for all that, that's that's like the backstory on why I am so passionate about this business and creating these products that people get to experience not just this amazing, very unique tea and, you know, other ingredients that we blend with the tea for these really cool non-alcoholic drinks. Um, but we're telling a story. We're inviting people to be part of the community. Yeah. We're letting them know that they're making, you know, you're making a healthy choice for yourself for your mind, your body, and you're making a huge impact in another community that maybe you don't know, but maybe when you meet them, it'll be like their their family. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have some Asheville people there. They just left yesterday. Um, the owner of Sanctuary Brewing out in Hendersonville, oh, Lisa. Yeah. yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, so she um, was at our farm this week in Rwanda. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, and she was traveling with... Um, this amazing photographer, Daniel, from the Raleigh-Durham area, and he's taken some beautiful photos. Awesome. Um, there with <clears throat> a project called the Sentient Project, Sentient Project, um, to raise awareness about animal rights and plant-based living. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're bringing all that into our work and our farm since everything we do is plant-based. And right. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, they're really awesome people. I've, I got to profile them for um, WNC Magazine a while back. Okay. And they're just like, yeah, I really enjoyed getting to know them and seeing their, their drive and their vision of what they're doing. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, they're now headed over the border to Uganda to, to visit an animal sanctuary over there. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. Huh. Um, yeah, t- tell me about how the tea company works, how, the, how it functions. Um, Three Mountains here in Asheville. Yeah. Let's see. I got my start as, um, I started real, it was like on the side. So I had other jobs, like most people here. Yeah. It's the Asheville hustle. Everybody has to have like seven jobs. Four or five. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And I just, I started bringing tea back to Asheville for gifts. Um, and other products. I mean, there's so many, you know, the coffee's amazing. Um, there's this really great chili pepper oil. I mean, I had all these ideas. I'm like, but how can we make the biggest impact? And what's viable? You know, where's the industry here in the U.S.? So I looked at coffee. I looked at tea. I looked at some other products like, you know, fabrics, jewelry. Um, and... I remember sitting down with Andrew at Dobra. He tasted the tea, and he knows so much more about tea. I was, like, newbie at tea. Yeah. Yeah, this was, like, four or five years ago. Um, believe it or not, I'm, I'm no tea connoisseur. I'm still <laughs> learning. And he's like, this is really good. I think the first one he tried was our Black Ceylon. He said, this is good. You've got something here. So I knew if he liked it, then we had a a good chance yeah um and the green and black tea that we sell has won awards internationally um i am the only distributor importer of the silver tea which is a very rare tea um and then we also have the white tea and now i'm doing an herbal blend with tulsi awesome so i started real real small um just you know selling tea by the pound i was ordering it um, through DHL. <laughs> so I'd get these like these boxes on my porch at home with 20 kilos <laughs> inside. <laughs> and the, I'll never forget the first package arrived. It was like product of Rwanda taped all over it. I was so excited. Um, I'll tell you the shipping costs more than the tea, you oh, know, wow. to get something by DHL from yeah. Africa. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, I was just ordering small quantities for places like Dobra and some other local cafes and bakeries and testing it out that way. Um, my first year, I don't know, I did like $5,000 of sales. That's how small it was. 
maybe the second year was like 10 or 15. Yeah. Um, and I knew that I wanted to start a consumer packaged goods line, um, but I knew that was going to be a big investment of money and time. So I finally, you know, did a more thorough business plan and really started learning about the CPG industry and who our target markets would be for those products. Um, and then left my other work and just went full-time a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, so that was a huge risk, huge chance, but I'm like, I'm all in, you yeah. know? I'm either going to do this or not. That's so awesome. That's when I launched um, the tins. So I came out, I started working with Big Bridge Designs here in town. They helped me with our branding, our packaging, our logos. We did this um, amazing pyramid-shaped tin for the teas. And then at the time, I was also, you know, because I had tea all around me at home um, and I'm in recovery. I don't drink alcohol, um, but I like going out. You yeah. know, I see my friends like looking for non-alcoholic options. There's all these amazing breweries, all these cool drinks going on tap. So I'm thinking I'm like, you know, brewing stuff at home. I'm getting these nitro kits and yeah. trying all these different things. Um, and then I finally land on the carbonated tea. So I start learning how to keg. Um, this great guy, Puff, takes me under his wing. He's the, he's the director at um, um, AB Tech's program, the Southeast Beverage Institute, uh, yeah. the Craft Beverage Institute, awesome. CBI. Um, they have an amazing program for brewers. So he took me on as a non-alcoholic project. Yeah. I was wondering, t like, how you're recovery fits in with all this and that mm -hmm. story because you know it it's, seems fitting that you're promoting a non-alcoholic back beverage. into the drinks <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's funny now i mean it's it's such a miracle of of the you know i work a 12-step program it's such a miracle of recovery that you know, i've got like 13 years now and i like last night i was delivering kegs to archetype you know, and yeah. I'm st I'm standing at the bar waiting for a check, and um, and they're like, do you? I'm looking at their menu. I'm like, cool names. You know, their beers have such cool names. He's like, which one do you want? I was like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> why do you think I made Silverback? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's it's really cool that I can go into places like that now, and like it feels like a living amends. Yeah, that I'm safe. Like I don't have the cravings anymore. And the reason people drink isn't um, well for me. It wasn't because I wanted the taste of a great beer. Right. <laughs> it was. It it wasn't a healthy reason like that. Yeah. Um, so I really I know a lot of people who are trying to drink less alcohol or just can't. They have yeah. an allergy. Um, they have the disease of alcoholism or, I mean, I read a study that 38% of college students in this country are choosing not to drink any alcohol. Whoa. Yeah. That was not me. That's surprising. Can you imagine? <laughs> 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 I would have done way better in college. <laughs> so that's awesome. You know, we're selling Silverback at UNCA and Warren Wilson. Um, they've got recovery programs on campus now. Yeah. So I really wanted to create, you know, I did create it in kegs to, to have an option on tap. When you pour it off tap, it looks just like a beer. Yeah. Because there's also this social stigma. Mm -hmm. Like when I go out, I mean, you know, or other people, like even if they're just a designated driver, like it's just boring to have water and people keep, people get uncomfortable. They're like, aren't you going to drink something? Like, right. pushy. <laughs> well, drinking is such a social thing. Yeah. So Even if, you know, if, if you don't get the the gin and, or the, the tonic water with the lime or something, yeah. they, they don't think you're yeah. <laughs> being a part of it. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 So I wanted it to have that appearance, too, and have a different flavor and not just, it's not just a sparkling drink. It's not just a... Um, another iced tea it's yeah. a category disruptor it's a whole new flavor i mean i love seeing people taste it for the first time they're like huh and their eyebrows kind of squinched they're like what they're like trying to make sense of it yeah and it takes a minute and their eyes kind of go up in their head <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's so good 
But they're surprised. They're like, right. wow, I like this. Is tea like a big cultural thing in Rwanda? Um, it is. Yeah, so there's a, a great drink called African tea, which most people drink every every day. Huh. Um, but it's, I think it's half black tea, half milk, and loads of sugar. And the spiced African tea usually has some ginger. Um, in general, Rwandans love the ginger flavor. And um, sometimes there's another spice that adds a little, like, pepper flavor huh. it's almost like a chai yeah yeah interesting and yeah i don't know actually if that was an influence of colonialism or um i'm not sure yeah but that's definitely more i don't know many rwandans who drink coffee even huh. though a lot of coffee is produced there yeah that's really interesting mm-hmm. you're more of a tea society yeah Huh. Black tea, mm-hmm. sweet tea. Mm-hmm. That's crazy because, yeah, you do always see Rwandan coffee in places. Yeah. I would think that it would be, I guess they just export all but of it. But that's pretty common. I mean, a lot of coffee-producing regions don't keep coffee for themselves. And and ir- ironically, I'll, like often if I'm visiting places that have you know amazing coffee growing there, um, they're selling the green beans, and then they've got Nescafe on the table. <laughs> It's <laughs> so sad. That's, that's pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what I realized when, when I was staying at this hotel, and I never saw them prepare my coffee, but they would say, do you want the weak coffee or the strong coffee? And I would always ask for the strong coffee, and I realized the strong coffee was the Nescafe powder, and the weak <laughs> coffee was, like, the real beans. So there I was. <laughs> <laughs> crazy buzz every morning <laughs> now i know why um that's funny yeah but our silver tea is really special it's it all i'm sure you know you know that all teas come all teas come from the same plant right um but a lot of people don't know that they think green tea and black tea and white tea come from different plants um, but the silver is a type of white tea, so it comes from the end of the Camellia sinensis plant, and it's it's actually a needle. It's it's like a long leaf that's twisted under the white tip bud. Oh wow! So it's really it's a young part of the plant, so it has high antioxidants. It has a really bold flavor, so it's stronger than white tea, but less less um, astringent than black tea. Yeah. And it's got medium medium to high levels of caffeine. Awesome. Yeah. So our Silverback Classic flavor is made with silver and black tea. It has 80 milligrams of caffeine in a can. And we just added this caffeine meter. So you can see, like, our new flavor is the platinum, which is made with white tea and fresh ginger. And the caffeine meter on that is low. Oh, cool. So we've got a low, medium, high. And then next, um, in the next month or two, we're coming out with uh, keto which is made with green tea and a couple other ingredients. It'll be zero, zero calories, zero sugar. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I got off of coffee you years ago because I just couldn't function anymore. I would just get so jittery. Yeah. And, like, I just I couldn't focus. I couldn't sit down and get yeah. work done when I had <laughs> that much caffeine. And, even, and then I was drinking these teas, and I was like, this has more caffeine, but I'm still functional. Yeah, it's different, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's, um, well, I, I just like saying the word polyphen- slow-release polyphenol. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, your body takes the caffeine as it needs it. Right. So. It's more, it's regulated. Yeah, it's not like a, a shot in the bloodstream. Yeah, nice. So, you, so how is that quitting coffee? It was fine. Um yeah, I didn't. I didn't really miss it. I no, don't. like withdrawal symptoms. No, I didn't drink it that much anyway. Oh, I wasn't. I've never been like a big caffeine junkie. Okay. But, <laughs> but you can handle caffeine from tea. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. bother. That doesn't okay. bother me at all. But like, I mean, I'll sit down at Dobra and just drink pot after pot of tea and you just do. like crank out work. Yeah. And uh, at home, I just make a big pot every morning and just sip on that throughout the workday. And it's, yeah, I feel like it's a much cleaner energy, much better, better way to function. But, uh, then coffee, which is just so acidic and it's just like, yeah, Mm. tears you up. Mm. (laughs) I really like doing a cold steep 
too. Have you done that with tea? Oh, what's the process for that? Um, it's just you you put the leaves in room temperature or cold filtered water, like in a mason jar, and just put it in the fridge. Um, so measure out a little more loose leaf than you normally would if you were steeping it hot, maybe yeah. one and a half times more. And then so you would do minutes to hours. So if you're going to steep black tea for four minutes hot, you're going to do like four hours in the fridge. Oh, wow. And then strain out the leaves. It is so good. So kind of like sun tea. Yeah, kind of like that, but without yeah. the bacteria. How is it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, it's it's smoother than if you were going to steep it hot and then put it in the fridge. Plus it doesn't cloud. How does it not get super tannic? It doesn't get as tannic as if you're steeping it hot. Interesting. Yeah. I'll try have to try it. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that sounds great. And so for green tea, I do like three hours. And if I think of it, I might, you know, jostle the jar, turn it a couple of times and that. Yeah. Nice. And then you can reuse the leaves for a second load. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> where can people find your teas? Where are, they, where are they sold? Well, right now on tap, our newest customer is Archetype Brewing in both West Asheville and down on Broadway in down, downtown Asheville. Um, and then Blue Dream Curry, right around the corner, they have it on tap as well. Awesome. Um, so I just love the flavor on tap. That's how we were born. Yeah. And it's hard to capture 100% in cans. Same like beer. Yeah. Um, but we do a pretty good job. Um, um, my production partners are Bear Waters Brewing out in Canton, and they're amazing. Um, they're, their whole staff, they're just amazing. And they really... They really have worked so closely with me and just making sure that we have that same on tap flavor in cans. Yeah. So we've got the carbonation level pretty spot on. Um, and the cans now, you can find, we've got a map on our website, silverbackbeverage.com, where you, you can just plug in where you are right now and it'll show you the closest location. Oh, cool. So, I mean, we're, <clears throat> we're at all the fresh market grocery stores. We're at uh, North Asheville Ingalls, Candler Ingalls, um, the French Broad Food Co-op, West Village Market. Nice. Hendersonville Co-op. So all over. Yeah. yeah. And then fridges, reach-in fridges, like at breweries, um, Sanctuary out in Hendersonville, um, Ginger's Revenge. Um, we're at, like, Grail Movie Theater, the Fine Arts Movie Theater. Oh, nice. Yeah. Some college campuses. Um, so hotels, restaurants, yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like all these places have been pretty receptive to the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, you know, obviously a product has to taste really good for people to take it, you know, buy it more than once. Yeah. I think a lot of people are psyched to try something if it has like a really cool label with a really sweet gorilla on the front <laughs> and there's a story like yeah. immediately. I mean, I notice when I do demos, people turn the can right away and look at the nutritional label, which is great. Like, oh. That's um, but right next to our nutritional label is our story. Yeah. You know, so I think right away people can see this is different. This is different than a Coke and Pepsi product, which yeah. is pretty obvious from the front. Right. Um, <laughs> but you never know. I mean, Coke and Pepsi own 70% of beverages in the U.S. And oh, there, yeah. some of them are in sheep's clothing. Like, <laughs> you yeah. have to look hard to see that that's who they're owned by. Right. Um, and then usually when people taste it, they absolutely love it. Yeah. So. Awesome. I just, yeah, my goal is... Um, to be in as many places as possible because it's with this kind of drink it's a volume game right you know the margins are pretty thin on yeah. canned beverages and we're fair trade certified we have a really strong give back program um so we you know part of my uh, motivation to create the company was to maintain um social services support for our producer partners and I want to be as responsible as possible to the people who are starting to rely on on this as yeah. a source of income. Hmm. So, you know, there's there's lots of multinational corporations out there that start sourcing or they 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 source from producer groups in in some part of the world and make this really big impact right away and people get excited and then they start real, you know they might even expand their farms to meet this this huge growing scale-up demand and then for one reason or another the company pulls out oh yeah you know and then they're like it's it's even more 
devastating than, you know, how they were living before. Even if they were living in poverty before and now they're living in poverty again, it's worse. Because they lost more. Yeah. Yeah. So I never want to do that. You know, if we're going to start buying from farmers, whether it's in the U.S. or in Rwanda, I want to make sure that is a commitment that we can stand behind. Yeah. Awesome. Is um, How often do you get to Rwanda? How often do you... Not enough lately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool to have people there like like Lisa and, and Daniel and Kaylin right now because every day they're sending photos. I feel like I'm almost there. Yeah. Um, I have a full-time employee there named Daniel also, and um, he's Rwandan, so he lives right there with his family. And um, then I'm partners with a, a group, a women's cooperative of 55 members. Hmm. Um, and I'll be there in January. I fly out on January 2nd. Um, so I'm bringing a group. I usually bring a group once a year and then I go by myself once a year. Yeah. But I haven't been there since February. Um, I went in February for Daniel's wedding, which was like a three day affair. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so it was like Friday, you know, or like preparation ceremonies and then Saturday was the wedding. And I think it started at 7 a.m. And it was still going on at 9 p.m. Oh and it was so hot and sun and sitting, just sitting all day long. Um, it was just beautiful, though. There's just so many rituals. And um, I love to see that. And then Sunday was more of the same. Um, but in January, I'll be taking a group of seven. And I have a customer... Um, a big Dan in North America, a big food company. They have their sustainability managers coming with me, so they're interested in buying some botanicals from the garden, helping to scale up that project, which is really exciting. Awesome. Um, and then the owner, the founders of Cooper Reese, which is a local recovery center, hmm. they're coming. So they're they've been to Rwanda before, and they're really interested in the recovery and resiliency model that we have going on there. Um, so they'll be with us. And then another wholesale customer, um, two members from another company called Arbor Tees. So they're a big customer of ours up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they buy our silver. They're big buyers of the silver tea, too. So, oh, cool. so they'll all get to meet the, the tea pluckers and the farmers and our partners who they've been sourcing from. Yeah. They'll get to build relationships with them. They'll How many to people t- total work on all these? on all these farms and things. How, how many people do you think you're touching with this oh, business Oh, well, like that? so Ubuzima is our healing garden, and that's a test farm. So that's where we're just starting to grow the botanicals. So we've got lemongrass, oats, um, Tulsi, mint, rosemary, and we have a hibiscus uh, farmer partner. So that community is probably including all the children. I mean, that's probably 250 people, and they wow. all... They support 10 people. So that's 250, you know, yeah. supporting 10 people. Um, and that's really, we just got started. We've been working together for four or five years, but that business just got, we, we bought that farm a year and a half ago. Wow. Um, and then the Cumulus Sinensis tea is coming from a very established uh, farmer cooperative collective. And that, those purchases touch 100,000 people. Wow. Yeah, because they have, between their employees at the factory and the tea pluckers, that's probably 8,000 people. And on average, they're all supporting 10 people. That's pretty astounding. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. A lot of hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a significant business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so when you talk about, like, not wanting to cut back or make that, you know, well, I speak today. No, I, I don't. And I don't want to say like 100,000 people aren't relying on my purchases. Right. But we are touching the lives there. Part and of as that we grow. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have other very big buyers there. But as we grow, we'll be making more and more of an impact there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then there's a ripple effect because, you know, they'll expand. They just built a new organic green tea factory in response to the growing demand of their collective customers. 
Um, so that's a huge investment. Yeah. You know, they need to make sure they can keep that factory busy. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. How long were you there when you lived in? Almost a year. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And you were running a restaurant down there? Mm-hmm. How did that go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I had worked in restaurants, so I guess I was um, maybe 30. Um, and I had definitely done every, you know, I had waitress, hosted. Like, I had a lot of experience working in restaurants. Yeah. Um, but... Not in Africa. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it's a, a wee bit different there. That is not the kind of, like, I, it is not the industry for me. I mean, I, that kind of stress, that kind of, uh, that kind of urgency was like so stressful for me. And so combine that with, um, it was, <laughs> first of all, like, I was just so naive, like bringing all kinds of equipment for the kitchen um, that just everything would break and there's no way to fix it and there's no parts. And, um, and then I remember, um, especially in our culinary arts training program, it was just so laughable that, you know, and so like, there's just so many cultural differences. If you think about a population that, um, most people, you know, most people are just barely getting by and food is a source of energy and survival. Yeah. It's just a matter of, like, how many calories do we need today to live? And how do we get the calories? Um, so when you add in this idea that eating and food is this, like, you know, beautiful, colorful experience, and um, I, I'll never forget, like, trying to incorporate like food art right so making the plate look pretty right for the customer it was just a it wasn't working <laughs> and then to like try to train um front of house staff in describing the flavors and the nuances it just isn't it's not part part of the culture yeah. When, you know, most people eat twice a day and it's rice and beans, maybe matoke, which is like um, cooked potatoes and bananas and maybe some kind of meat, mm. like rarely. Yeah. That's it. So and you eat until you, you eat as much as you can put on your plate and you you eat all of it and then, you know, hope for another meal. Right. So it was really it it was such and it, it was such a learning experience for me that year to just realize it was so humbling you know yeah. um but we were also building a place where we were appealing to tourists and international customers so we still had to maintain like a certain level of you know we had to meet their expectations while honoring and respecting the local population's culture yeah and not asking them to change who they were. What kind of food were they serving? <clears throat> um, we created a, it's like an eclectic menu um, using mostly local ingredients. So, oh no, we had, there's not much seafood. We had like one, we had a tilapia from the lake there. Um, and we do, I mean, I didn't create the menu, but yeah. um, we had like some kind of um, a flank steak with this pesto made with cassava, which grows locally, um, plantain chips and salsas and guacamole. Like the avocados are amazing there. The mangoes, the fruit. Yeah. Year round. Awesome. Yeah. And then there's always like a grilled chicken. I mean, everything is organic, free range. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, I mean, that was then. I mean, now they're introducing pesticides, but. Right. Um, most of the food is really clean and organically grown. Hmm. I love um, Rwanda has a no plastic policy. So it's really clean. There's no plastic um, bags in the trees like a lot of countries wow. have. Um, they'll go through your bags at the airport and take out any plastic. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Huh. I had no idea. How long has that been a policy there? For as long as I know. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. And then they have this community day where it's one Saturday a month. Everyone, unless you have, um, I think, like, nannies, maybe, ha nannies and maybe, like, 
restaurant type staff um, have a, a ticket out, but everyone else comes together and does community service on Saturday, one oh, Saturday cool. month. So you'll see people sweeping the streets, picking up trash, doing whatever needs to happen, no matter what their position in society is. Huh. No pay. It's just That's rallying really cool. together. Yeah. And you said it's like monthly? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Man. We need to incorporate those kinds of things. I know. <laughs> Did you see Europe's going plastic-free? Yeah, I heard about yeah. that. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's necessary. And if you've ever been in a third-world country, like, it is just a plastic mess. trash everywhere. Yeah. And Or they're burning it, you know? Yeah, and it's, the uh, smell of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, huh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, I would say um, as much as I learned and it changed my life, I I knew that wasn't the industry I was meant to be in. That was really my ticket there. Yeah. It opened the door for me to learn about the culture. And what it really did is it opened the door for me to learn about the work that I still had to do on a personal level. Yeah. Because I was not prepared for the level of trauma that I was going to encounter yeah. Um, and it brought up a lot of my own stuff. It brought up, you know, by the end of the time we had there, we were offered a second um, contract. And I just knew I needed a break. I knew that I had to leave and process everything I had experienced and get grounded and do some deeper healing work on yeah. myself. Because everyone there has a story and a, like there's a lot of sad stories and yeah. it's in your face it's like there's memorial sites on every corner mm-hmm. and sometimes just like in this country you walk by someone because I, I would walk I didn't drive I would walk back and forth to the restaurant every day long walks and I would I remember sometimes just passing someone and everyone always looked into my eyes um and you, have you ever looked at someone and it's like their eyes are just dead? Yeah. It's like there's nothing there, just like a stone. Yeah. It's the saddest thing. Mm. And it's almost like the soul has just left. Yeah. And I would see people like that. And I think it maybe it just hit me so much because I realized like I, I had almost been there. Yeah. Like I was leaving, you know, there were times in my life where I had just checked out too. Yeah. And it's really sad to see that in someone because I think we all have so much potential. And I think, I think a lot of people give up on life because they lose sight of their light. Mm-hmm. And maybe there aren't people around them that that, help, that can help them see that light. Right. And that's what we do. It's not, we're not empowering someone else. I don't believe you do that. I believe yeah. we are helping people to uncover the light that they already have yeah. inside them. Had you already been through your recovery when you went to Rwanda? Yeah, I started. I mean, I had started. So, yeah, I, I had maybe three years. Um, so that was interesting, like early sobriety, going into a restaurant where there was a lot of alcohol, right. no AA meetings, right. <laughs> no, um, you know, there wasn't a network of recovery. Um, and um, I was, yeah, I wasn't, it was just so intense that didn't really cross my mind at all as an option. Yeah. Yeah. I knew I had to be really safe and really focused while I was there. Um, and honestly, like since getting sober, I've never, um, I've, it was, you know, we talk about in the rooms of AIs, like something is lifted. Like when we fully surrender to the disease and like we're, we're fully ready to get sober and to recover, it's, it's a miracle. Like something just lifts yeah. and that desire is gone. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say it would never come back, but that's why I work in active program. Right. You know what? I went on, um, a road trip in Rwanda that year. I ended up in a different part of the country and I check into this old rinky dink hotel and it was just one of those days. It was like such a rough day. And I was standing at the front desk 
and I see this little post-it note behind the front desk, and it says, Friends of Bill. And I don't know if you know what that means, but Bill W. is the founder of AI, right. so it's like a thing. It's like, Friends of Bill, call, and then there's a number. And I was like, it's a sign. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I call the number, and they're like, is everything okay? Are you okay? Do you want a drink? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want a drink, but this is so cool. Is there AA in Rwanda? He was like, as a matter of fact, there is. There's like one meeting in the whole country. Oh <laughs> but now there's more. Yeah. There's more, you know? Yeah. And we've helped start meetings and we've brought books and awesome. we talk about it in our work there. So yeah. um, it's a problem there, just like everywhere. I mean... There are children, babies drinking banana beer um, before they're walking. Whoa. And I remember sitting with a Rwandan family and asking them why they were giving their baby banana beer. And they said, because it's all we have to give them. And they're hungry. And yeah. it fills their belly. Wow. And that's common. Yeah. And I know it happens in this country, too. Yeah. I know people put soda in a baby bottle i mean right. why but so there's there's a lot of alcoholism everywhere no matter how you know no matter how much poverty i have people say well, i'm really surprised there would be like drugs and alcohol in a place like that <laughs> it doesn't matter like how much money do. you have yeah <laughs> you can scrape resin off of a motorcycle tire and make a drug if you want to right yeah. Don't Google that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try that at home. <laughs> it doesn't taste good. No. <laughs> I've never done it. Well, and there's just like, you know, I think it also goes back to that issue of trauma mm -hmm. of like, if you're, you know, well, I'm sure you know this very well. Like we drink to hide mm -hmm. from dealing with the things that are too difficult for us to deal with. Right. And, uh, you know, you can only imagine that in a society that's that, with that much trauma and that much mm -hmm. history of violence, that it's, yeah, that's, alcoholism would be rampant, I would yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, I can understand it. Yeah. I mean, there, um, there were so many, <clears throat> so I never know what the right word is to use because I don't, I don't like the words perpetrator and victim. Right. Um, but in this case, like, that's the best thing I can think of to use. So during the genocide, there were so many people who committed acts of genocide, yeah. crimes against humanity, and yeah. were considered perpetrators. Everyone was Rwandan. Um, but there were so many people who committed those acts. The prisons, like, there's no way everyone could be, you know, taken into prison. Yeah. So a lot of people were, but a lot of people weren't. And then the people who were um, were put into two different color uniforms. One meant they were genocidaires who had not asked for forgiveness yet. The other uniform meant they were genocidaires who had asked for forgiveness and they were just waiting to be let out. And they were waiting for the family to hear the story of what happened and then they would be released. Yeah. So once they told... The story, if they remembered, because they might have been drunk, because there was a lot of banana beer and drugs during the genocide, too. Yeah. Um, then everyone started moving back to their villages, the survivors mm. with the perpetrators. So now you have everyone living together again who yeah. didn't die. So for someone, you know, whose babies were slaughtered in front of them and they're living next to the, the person who did it and they see them every day. Whoa. How do you heal from that? Because all the trauma healing lessons that I took say, in order to really heal, you have to be safe. You have to feel safe. You have to be in a safe space, a safe home, around people you trust. Yeah. So how do you heal when you're living next to that person you see them all day long? Wow. Yeah. That's, how are they? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know what it is that that um, I'm still, like, I'm so fascinated by the human spirit. I don't know what that thing is that um, some people fall apart. Some people don't make it. Yeah. Um, some people take action. You know, maybe they have the courage to move, to leave, to change circumstances. Um, and then I think some people just, <laughs> honestly, I 
the the stories that I've heard that have touched me so deeply about finding a way to forgive and 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 find reconciliation in these communities is this profound sense of the spirit whether it's god whether it's like a formal god or just a sense of you know higher power yeah that's what it is because i what i've seen is people are on their knees with okay there's no way out of this situation this is my life yeah how do i move forward and try to like you know create a life for my children that was better than mine and look you know have some hope for the future yeah it's this deep surrender. It's this deep surrender to a higher power, to a spirit saying, I don't, it's not my will. It's, you know. Is that sh- what it took for you? That's what it took for me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did yeah. that come before or after you started your recovery process? Mm. I think I knew, I think I knew in my 20s, um, that it was going to take something like that. But I think I always had this sense of hope. I yeah. never, you know, I always knew, like I, I remember just like reading so many books and I don't know. Did you ever read way of the spiritual war? Way of no. the spiritual war. Is that what it called? Way of the way of the peaceful warrior. Dan Millman. Uh-uh. That was like my first self-help kind of one of my <laughs> college friends was like, this is going to change your life. And it did. It was the first book was like, Oh my God! It was about this, um, this, well, this former athlete, and I think he had like a bad injury, and he couldn't do what he loved and what his identity was all about. And he runs into this gas station attendant, and the gas station attendant starts teaching him what life is really about, and it's not about what you do or who you know or how much money you have. That you can find this sense of inner peace and joy no matter what. Yeah. And I wanted that so. Di- I was just like so hungry for that. I would hear people talking about it, and and then, um, yeah, I remember the first meeting I went into, uh, first, like, 12-step meeting, but I was still drinking, and people were laughing, and they were, ta- they like, they just looked happy and, like, chill, and I was like, this can't be real. <laughs> no drugs and alcohol in here. <laughs> but there's usually trauma behind all, like you said, there's yeah. usually trauma behind all addiction. Yeah. And so it's not, that's just the Band-Aid. It's just us trying to use self-coping mechanisms. But, I mean, there's, I think everyone has some kind, everyone's got some kind of addiction, right? Yeah. Like behaviors, emotions, relationships, food, mm-hmm. you know. There's yeah. So, there's always something to turn to. Of course. <laughs> Unless you're like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> not human. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, for me, it wasn't like an organized religion. It was just this like, okay, I'm not in control. I'm not in control. The way I'm trying to do it is not working. I surrender. Like, show me my path. Show me my purpose. And that brought me to Rwanda. Hmm. And on days when I feel, like, bogged down by, you know, business administration or, you know, I mean, in this business, it's, like, there's a lot of no's. There's a lot of rejection. Yeah. And I just, I hold, I hold the vision of these beautiful faces in Rwanda or here, you know, and now I hold the vision of, like, my family here and people I love here in the U.S., but it started with, like, a couple of women in Rwanda, they were my light. They were like, if they can do it, that yeah. thing we talked about, like that they have to do every day, yeah, then I can definitely do it. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being in, I can't imagine trying to sort my own shit out when I'm also watching these people have that mm. depth of difficulty in, mm. in what they have to surmount. Mm-hmm. You know, that that has to be... I don't know. It's, I think I said this earlier too, that it just, that kind of shared trauma must be a Mm. nice place to be able to work on yourself. Yeah. For a while. And then I think what I found too, I went through this new shift in the past probably four or five years where I realized sometimes trauma actually bonds people together and Mm. it becomes toxic. Yeah. Um, so I had to break away from some things and some people, yeah, um, some family members, because I realized that was almost the glue that was binding us together, and it was holding me back in certain ways of like 
going farther with my healing. You couldn't get beyond it because just to release it. It yeah. had to be. It was based on it. Yeah. And 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 that's why I first had to leave Rwanda because I. I I felt like I was taking on other people's story and holding it and it was just so sad I couldn't take it. Yeah. And I'm like I don't know. I I had to learn more skills for um being able to like hold space for people and and listen yeah. with an open heart without it like seeping into my cells as like my own experience. Right. And I think for a lot of people who are empathic um, or really vulnerable and too too vulnerable in their own healing. Um, that's a real big risk. And it's not doing anyone a service. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important for everyone to know before traveling to a place like that. Yeah. Because um, we have to be responsible with our energy and responsible with our healing. I think we... I think... I think we owe it to humanity to do our own healing because there's such a ripple effect, mm-hmm. you know, that we have on everyone around us. Yeah. And especially like as parents, you know, before raising children and yeah, it just all carries through the family. Right. Here, I've, I've saved this for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here's this, your gift. This big bundle of garbage <laughs> in my life. And then when you're 30, you, you can spend 20 years on therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's your second gift to look forward to later in life. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have taken up so much of your time, but I am so glad to have heard your story. And thank you for you know sticking around and talking so long. Thank you so much. Was, this has been great. Yeah, yeah good conversation. That was Sarah Stender Delaney, the founder of Three Mountains Tea. You can find more information about Three Mountains at threemountains.org. That's like three is in the number, threemountains.org. You should also take a look for my profile on Sarah in the upcoming spring issue of WNC Magazine. The Dirty Spoon is brought to you by the Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years of farm-to-table food. The Marketplace always strives to bring you the best food grown by our neighbors. Second Helpings is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. Produce the show, write the music, mix it, edit it, yada, yada, yada. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our webpage, marketing, and development. Be sure to head to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, to stream full episodes at the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read stories from the show, see the incredible art from our contributing artists, and to support us by subscribing to our Patreon. This is actually the last regular episode of The Dirty Spoon for the season. We are going to be taking a couple months to gear up for season three, but stay tuned. We will be releasing a couple bonus podcasts during the off-season, and we'll also be broadcasting special compilation episodes and music mixes on our regularly scheduled broadcast time at 5 p.m. on the first Friday of every month on 103.7 WPVM bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. With me.